Now, what follows is something I heard from the Lord Pope Alexander less than a month ago. He told me that recently Count William, who lives in the district of Liguria, had a male monkey called a Maimo in the vernacular. He and his wife, a completely lewd and wanton woman, used to play in shameless fashion with him. I myself have met his two sons, whom this vile woman who deserves a beating had born of a certain bishop whose name I will omit because I do not enjoy defaming anyone. She often used to play with the lecherous animal, taking it in her arms and fondling it, and the monkey in the meantime gave signs of being aroused and tried with obvious effort to come close to her nude body. Her chambermaid said to her, why don't you let him have his way so we can see what he is after? What more should I say? She submitted to the animal, and what a shameful thing to report. It mated with the woman. This thing became habitual, and she frequently repeated this unheard of crime. One day, when the Count was in bed with his wife, aroused by jealousy, the Maimo suddenly jumped on both of them, tore at the man with his arms and sharp claws as if he were his rival, got him by the teeth, and wounded him beyond all recovery. And so the Count died. Hi, I'm Alexa Sand. And I'm Ian McInnes. And this is Real Fantastic Beasts. Because we believe that learning about animals and history and literature and art helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today. So, Ian, apes and monkeys in the Middle Ages. Obviously, they are real, but maybe some of the things people believed about them were a little fantastic. Can we, can we go back to that firsthand account for a second? This is being told to the Pope. No, this is a this is gossip. The Pope told this guy who's the narrator, Peter Damien. He was a, a 11th century um, monk and a hermit. He was close friends with Pope Alexander. And um, I guess he was visiting one day and the Pope conveyed this little juicy tidbit to him. It goes on, actually, that uh, not, not only did the monkey kill the count, but then the countess bore a child who some people suspect is actually the monkey's child because he's very large for his age and doesn't speak. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just I'm trying I to mean, get my head around the whole pope thing. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think one of the interesting things about a lot of the monkey lore and ape lore from the Middle Ages is that it it does deal with the clergy. So Clerics, supposedly, were the group of people most likely to own apes and monkeys and to keep them in their houses. There's an account from the 12th century where Hugh of St. Victor is talking about how some clerics keep these monkeys or apes in their window, basically chained up in the window so that people can see that they're very wealthy and, and they live this sort of luxurious lifestyle. He, he says it by way of criticism. So clearly there's some relationship between the clergy and these monkeys and apes. But like exotic pets, okay, like wealth, I, I get it. Is there a reason why the, cler like the, the clergy's exotic pet would be the ape or the monkey as opposed to, I don't know, like a, any other exotic wild critter? Yeah, it's hard to say. And I mean, the, the clergy obviously kept other pets as well. Keeping pets was a sign that you remember the aristocracy. So maybe it was a way of announcing that. But there is also something about apes and monkeys. You know, the, the Latin name for that whole class of animals is simians, which really comes from the same root as the word similarity or similitude. And it relates to the fact that 
apes and monkeys not only sort of look like and behave a little bit like human beings, but also are very capable of miming human behavior. So if an ape or a monkey sees a human being doing something, they'll do it too, um, or they'll, they'll do it in an inhuman way. So perhaps there's something to that, the, the sort of ambiguity of the ape or the monkey, that, that it's enough like a person that it can not exactly fool you, but it can at least um, entertain you with its imitation of, of humanness. So I think that that's in there for sure. Yeah, imitation, for sure. And I mean, another, another thing about apes and monkeys and their being exotic pets is that they kind of have this like childlike characteristic and you wonder if clerics who are celibate you know in a sense they they adopt these non-human children and can be fathers to these human-like sort of perpetual toddlers you know and to the point the the apes and monkeys that were most often kept as pets in medieval Europe as was the case in you know, Rome and even Greece, were North African ape macaques, basically, um, similar to the Barbary apes. So, you know, they look, they don't have a tail. They just look pretty human. You could dress them up in a little outfit. And they did. I'm sure they did. I have seen pictures of paintings, at least, where they're dressed up, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, Um, how much those paintings are are documentary and how much their fantasy is another question but like in medieval manuscripts by the time you get to the the 13th century you see a lot of monkey business in the margins of medieval manuscripts and the the very famous um art historian michael camille actually wrote about this in his groundbreaking work called image on the edge and he talked about how the monkey business in the margins of medieval manuscripts is really so revelatory about um, the preoccupations of the people who made and used those manuscripts. Their their thoughts about categorization, so human, non-human, sacred and and profane, uh, and various other things. And it and it sort of allows the illuminator, the the painter, to get in around the edges and kind of lift lift up the curtain a little bit over the sacred text or the or the heroic text and sort of show you the the more satirical side of of things because of their similarity but also their difference monkeys sort of operate at this edge at this margin of humanity and allow a lot of opportunities for satire for critique and i think they're very useful animals for thinking with in the middle ages i think i feel like we're going to have more to say about these animals in the margins uh in medieval manuscripts because it's more than just in other words it's a there's a kind of an imitative feature of the marginal art where that we have animals doing lots of human activities a lot of anthropomorphic stuff and it just happens to be that the apes are the best candidate for that so that they probably appear the most but uh i can bet you we're gonna like when we get to some of the uh, our under other you know creatures we're gonna like find them also in the margins yeah it's really interesting you should mention that because another thing that michael camille points out is that the sort of medieval terminology for all of the stuff that's going on in the margins whether it's humans humanoids rabbits jousting foxes having puppet shows whatever it is the stuff in the margins is described in medieval terms in middle english as babuin which comes from the word baboon, basically. So the idea of 
everything sort of becomes monkey business, whether whether it's monkeys doing it or not. <laughs> I think we, we need, you know, rather than monkey business, we need uh, babunage. Babunage would be a good word for us. I always think of some medieval mother who's just at the, at, you know, her wits end. Her kids have been driving her crazy all day. And she just says to when when her husband comes home from plowing the fields, she shakes her fist at him and says, you deal with all this babuinage. (laughs) (laughs) And and I mean, that is another thing like this that I've already mentioned, this sort of like the bleed over or the area, the gray area between apes, monkeys and humans seems to kind of coalesce around children or the immature, you know, in the story from Peter Damien, it's this offspring who doesn't seem quite right. And one possible explanation for that is that he's half monkey. This idea of kind of hybridity yeah. and, and not quite gelling into humanity. And, and you know, the concept of a human child not being quite fully human until they reach the age of reason is also, I think, in the mix here. Just to change the subject or to change the focus for a moment, w- one of my favorite stories from the Middle Ages about apes and monkeys is about a monkey that was owned by a high-ranking cleric in England. And the cleric and a, and a nobleman were, were doing a deal, basically. The nobleman was giving a, a piece of land to the church. And the ownership of this land was attested by a charter that is a legal document with a seal on it. Um, and this charter was very old. It was, you know, 200, 250 years old. So it had the seal of an individual who lived 250 years earlier on it. And the monkey, while the two men were discussing the sort of details of the deal, ate the charter. Like it just ate it. <laughs> and in the account, <laughs> in the account of this, you know, sort of legal dilemma, the thing that the the narrator focuses on is and he ate the seal. He ate the seal, the wax seal. That's really bad. That's, you know, he ate an antique. <laughs> he ate this like trace yes. of this human being. It, it, effectively, he ate the, the person <laughs> who, you know, who was represented by that seal. And I just love that moment where like, it's, it's so true, right? Like, I mean, I've never owned a monkey as a pet, but I've heard stories and like, these are not animals who are going to live with you in a sort of like a passive way. They're going to be very actively involved in how you manage your household and they're going to eat your charters and turn on your stove when you're not at home. They're, yeah. they're too smart to be, you know, left to their own devices, which is why, by the way, you yeah, often see them seems... with a little uh, collar around their neck and, and they were kept chained up as, as Hugh of St. Victor mentions. Yeah, well, there's certainly uh, Renaissance paintings with them chained to a, a ball so that you could move them around. You could have your servants carry them from room to room and not have to reattach them to the wall or anything. Also, right. they could be Which chained is... in the middle of the floor where they can't reach anything. Exactly. Sort of like what you kind of imagine that some parents wish they could do with their toddlers. And again, it's this sort of... <laughs> It seems like a terrible thing to do to an animal that you love or cherish to chain it up. But if that's the only way to keep it safe, maybe that's what you do. I don't know. Right. And we, we do contain children in perhaps less visibly uh, like shackled ways. But, you know, there's play pens and uh, leashes or, you know, I don't know, there's all sorts of ways of keeping right. children from getting themselves into trouble. Gate, gates all over the, well, the house. Well, and certainly kind of in the period... 
yeah, and certainly in the Middle Ages, tying up a child was a completely acceptable parenting choice to keep yeah. them out of trouble, basically, to keep them from harming themselves. So there's a, yeah, there's a lot of continuity between all of these things. Yeah, and furthermore, and the, I feel like... And the Renaissance. Yeah, standard, standards of how you treated animals or even other human beings were not, you know, 21st century standards. So when you chained up your monkey, how was that different from chaining up a human whom you believed to be your chattel? And there was plenty of that. Yes. So tell me about the Renaissance. Oh, I was going to say mean, the... the, the Tell there, me there's about plenty the of um, continuity, right? All the, all the, all the, you know, the, the, like that obsession with the, the mimetic feature of, of apes and, and their, the way that they challenge concepts of humanity. That's all there. There's, they add. There's a little bit of sort of pseudo uh, scientific natural history that gets added as well. You know, like you'll come up with like ideas like, well, there's this, this thing called sea apes and dolphins apparently eat sea apes when they're sick to get healthy. So lions who are like the kings on land must eat apes in order to, you know, get healthy when they're sick. Right. So like that kind of stuff kind of gets added to the mix. Wait, but hold on. Just, you know, sea like, apes. Yeah. <laughs> what are yes. those? Unknown. We'll have to do an episode. <laughs> what is the sea ape? <laughs> I'll, I'll get back to you. And I'll, next time I'll, I'll explain what a sea ape is. <laughs> but there's a bit of a twist, right? So the like most of the imitative things that you were mentioning are negative. They're kind of challenging in a they're kinds of anxieties about the nature of the human and the apes and monkeys seem to represent, you know, um appetite, right? The eating the seal or or lust or all of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But there's a little bit of a twist in at least some of the Renaissance images. There's a great Map of the Cosmos in a book by Robert Flood that shows the cosmos in the usual Ptolemaic way. The Earth's at the center and there's the spheres of the sun and the planets that surround it. But the, the twist on this image, it's called the, the mirror of nature and the prime image of art. And hmm. there's a, a, re a reference to God outside the, the universe, sort of the, the hand reaching in. And then from hmm. that hand is a chain that comes down to nature who is represented by a woman not wearing any clothes because nature is just un, un, unadorned. Right. <laughs> um, but then the woman right. is holding a chain on her own and that chain goes down to an ape that is, who is sitting on the earth. And the ape, right, so the, the, the woman is nature, God is God, but the ape represents art. And it's, it's not just art. fine art, what we would think about, you know, in what you study, but like every human activity is represented is is an art, right? So in in that case, mm -hmm. uh, the ape stands in for all of the things that is set, that uh, you know were considered to make humans human, right? And all of the things that that mm -hmm. uh, you know people strove for and were proud of are represented by this sort of basic mimetic function. So in that view, the fact that the apes are imitative is the thing that sort of qualifies them to represent essentially all of humanity did you ever take like the survey uh, of art history as a college student i sat in on a class on northern european art in graduate school that is that's the that's the beginning and end other than trekking through many many galleries okay well if you had taken Why? um sort of art history 101 you you might have had there's a good chance you might have had this textbook by this guy named 
H.W. Janssen, so Horst Voldemort Janssen. He was a Russian-born German-American professor of art history, um, and he wrote this book, The History of Art, in 1962, but it's still being used today as a textbook. His special interest in the history of art was apes and ape lore in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. And his his book was called Art, the Ape of Nature. So um, so I always wondered where he got that title. Now I know. Well, we do. You know, there's that conventional idea. Art imitates life. Right. Which has been, of course, right. challenged by most of modern art. But, you know, certainly held to be a, a truth at the at the time. The main change or the main thing that I don't know, like seems very much. Uh, more of a kind of a, uh, like a early modern or Renaissance activity is the way that the the ape began to be sort of part of an entertainment industry rather than you know rather than like the elite uh, pet which it remained I mean there were aristocrats keeping mm -hmm. um, apes and monkeys old world and new world eventually but yeah. in England in particular there's this uh, form of entertainment which cohabits along with the you know Shakespeare's theater which is bear baiting which occurs at the Bear Garden, mm -hmm. which is right next to the, you know, the, the Globe Theater. And this is a, a form of entertainment in which they would take bears and then they would sick dogs on them and, and everyone would uh, watch this fun. But one of nice. the, uh, and I'm, I'm, I should put fun in the, the quotation marks there because we can have a lot to say about this, but one of the events, one of the central events or interludes in this um, was something called Jack and Apes on Horseback where mm. there would be a break from the bear baiting and uh, in would come a horse on the back of which was tied a monkey who had been dressed up in fancy clothing. And they would let the dogs loose on this monkey and the horse, some of the evidence suggests that the, they would be muzzled at this point. Um, but the, you know, like basically what they're, what people are watching is this, this poor uh, horse and monkey being absolutely terrified by the attacking of these animals uh, all to the tune of bagpipes, the traditional accompaniment for Jack and Apes on horseback. Um, and I'm that's where we get the word Jack and Apes is really sort of from this practice. Where were they like, getting these monkeys or apes well, to, to put them on where horseback? Where were they getting them? Most of them, most of the ones like the, the ones used in the bear garden would be coming from North Africa. They'd be basically the uh, Barbary apes or macaques. And <laughs> of course, they had to be shipped in. So there's this uh, great story from around 1636 where we have a we have a guy in London writing home, and he says, "You'll never believe what happened." Uh, so there was this merchant here, and he wrote to his his factor in North Africa, saying that he needed two or three apes because you know you need apes for the public entertainment industry. But when he wrote two or three, he smudged his oar, and the factor thought that it was two hundred and three apes that he wanted. So uh, a ship shows up, and there's there's 80 apes on board and there's a note from the factor saying, I understand you want 203. They're really hard to find. Here are 80. Like I'll send the next by the next ship. Um, so the guy's writing home and he's saying, look, if you want an ape for cheap, this is the time to get one because they're just, you know, they have way too many here. A glut on the monkey Both market. kind of like lets you know that there's, yeah, on the monkey market, right? More, more, more baboonage here, which I mean, it tells you the scale kind of the scope, the fact that the monkeys are part of a kind of international, you know, that they're a product, they're a commodity that is being shipped uh, and noted, like by numbers, people are ordering them up. But also that idea that somehow 
uh, your friends might be interested in getting one, right? Like, you know, like you, you've had friends who are like, gosh, I really wish I could get one of those apes. And you're like, now's your time, right? Like, uh, you know, Amazon Prime Day, like come and get your ape. That's a different, a kind of a different world, I think, right? Like people are looking for discount apes. Because, but the Bear Garden, like, it's, I mean, it's such a central feature. And it's one, it's one of the things that's noted by like most, you know, ambassadors to England are really... Uh, intrigued by and notice this. It is true that this these kinds of activities are going on in other places, but it is one of those kind of quintessential Elizabethan London activities. So when we think about apes and monkeys in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, you know, it seems like they often, whether it's in their entertainment value or their value as pets or even their metaphorical value, it seems like their purpose really is to fulfill this kind of intermediate space between what it means to be human and what it means to be an animal and to kind of open that up and to expose the messiness of that distinction. It's not surprising to me that people were both sort of fascinated by them and then like moralists would rage against them. There's this great account or this great passage in a letter by Bernard of Clairvaux, the great early 12th century monastic reformer, raging against all of the images in the sculptural elements of monastic churches. And, and he really specifically points out the, the apes as kind of a thing that distracts the monks from their prayers, like looking at these images of apes. So this idea of a kind of the ape as a disruptor, I think to me, that's where these animals sort of hover between, re I mean, they're real animals, of course, but there's all of this sort of fantasy wrapped up around them. So they're in some ways kind of the, the ultimate real fantastic beast. Like they're a beast that maybe you, you have even seen in, you know, a Jack and Apes show or a cleric's window. They do exist. And in that sense, they sort of validate all these other fantastical beasts to which they're associated through babouinage, but also through things like you know, these world maps you mentioned, even back in the Middle Ages, you see world maps have these creatures all around the edges, right, that are sort of ape-like, sort of human-like, sometimes sort of dog-like mm -hmm. as well, um, which is an interesting ambiguity. You know, they have the head of a dog and the body of a human, but they're actually a kind of ape in the natural histories of the period of in Isidore of Seville, or I think even in Bede, it's mentioned. So these hybrid animals, they're almost like a figure for hybridity. Which explains why they occupied a much darker role in, uh, in uh, Western history with colonialism and the enslavement of other peoples. Uh, not that they do, not that it's not dark, you know, in in sort of the Middle Ages, in the early Renaissance, in terms of you know right. cruelty to animals, but they became part of that kind of relative anthropocentrism that was trying to like say, well, there's some people who are less human than other humans, and you know what happens when you begin right. to sort of blur the, the the boundary between the human and the non-human uh, becomes a a way of justifying uh, the the treatment of other peoples. Yeah, absolutely, and of course as you know, after 1492, particularly, you start to see the influx of New World mon monkeys, which people kept as pets. There's a kind of a, a way in which the monkey, and now we really are talking about biologically talking about monkeys rather than apes, the monkey becomes a kind of um, signal for a colonialist way of thinking about the wider world. The places where monkeys are endemic, Africa, South America, the Indian subcontinent, they, 
they become in a sense sort of emblematized by the monkey in that period of the 16th century. I think apes and monkeys are troubling. I mean, both the way humans treated these animals, strapping a terrified ape to the back of a probably equally terrified horse while playing bagpipes. I mean, that just to me is the most horrific thing from the point of view of these animals. So, so what do you I mean, think about think, the cruelty of the, the bear garden? Well, I mean, I think it's always hard as a historian to look at these things that are so inconceivable. Well, we we think, where our gut instinct is to say that's inconceivable, we would never do anything like that in the 21st century, right? But I think really our job is not to judge the people who who did those things, but rather to think about how it reflects on certain kinds of human attitudes towards animals that are still with us. I mean, we we carry all of the these histories with us, right? And when we go to the zoo or when we when we eat our hamburger at McDonald's, like I think I think we have to think about how the the cruelty of the bear garden, for example, is very much out there, right? And and the point isn't the cruelty. I think as you said, it's it's the entertainment. We, we like to think we're so much more civilized, you know, and we use the term medieval to describe things that are cruel or violent. But I, I think it behooves us to consider how we pull a kind of curtain across our cruelty and our violence towards animals and towards other human mm. beings. Whereas the sort of yeah. medieval and early modern use of the monkey or the ape was really a way of exploring and exposing those cruelties or those paradoxes that's what i think i'm not Another sure it thing excuses is that, the bear yeah, garden <laughs> what do you think well no it definitely doesn't excuse the bear garden the level of cruelty towards from of humans toward other humans in this period was pretty high you have to notice that the the bear garden the point of the bear garden was not entertainment through cruelty right so you were not supposed to be mm-hmm. appreciating it wasn't like the roman gladiatory you know like arena where Clearly, mm-hmm. those spectators were taking pleasure in pain. Topsil calls the monkey a subtle, ironical, ridiculous, and unprofitable beast made only for laughter. Mm-hmm. The only use for humans of this animal is laughter. Mm-hmm. But when they execute somebody, you know, the point is pain, right? In other words, the, the audience right. for a human yeah. execution is not supposed to be laughing or enjoying it. They're supposed to be taking a moral lesson from the pain of other human beings. So, you right. know, in, in a way the cruelty that's enacted in these kind of uh, entertainment arenas is it's, it's not the main game. It's not the point of the activity, mm-hmm. which is not to say that it doesn't occur. Right. So like, we can't, we can't excuse right. it and say like, well, everything's fine. Cause they weren't trying to be cruel. Um, but right. you know, I was just thinking about like the, the, the kinds of things that you, you know, people, people do with pets now. I mean, we still treat pets as sort of opportunities for laughter, right? Look at all the YouTube, you know, like 90% of the YouTube pet videos are about laughing at animals. Yeah. And dressing up your cat in an outfit or your dog, yep. you, know, you know what I'm saying? And I, and, and I think that again, gets at the very root of the history of human relationships to animals in European and and Western culture, right? There's always this effort to both recruit them to the human and to alienate them from the human. And I think this this podcast, our goal is really to look at how the fantasy of the beast is in a way the fantasy of what it means to be human. And apes and monkeys are the, the perfect avenue to that because they're so clearly part of a kind of made use of in a way that depends on their 
similarity, their simianness, uh, right, with humans. And I mean, as modern genetic science has shown us, they're really not very different from us at all. You know, we have what is it, like ninety nine point five percent of the same DNA as a chimpanzee. I'm not quite sure how close we are to a Barbary ape, but you know, we're we're close. And it turns out that even as humans. Homo sapiens, we're pretty hybrid. You know, the the latest data out of the Max Planck Institute suggests that all of us have a little bit of some other hominid species DNA blended into our our mix. All right, that's it for now. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating. Ratings are one of the ways that we get new listeners. You can also go to our website, realfantasticbeasts.com, where you can find show notes, images, a link to our Patreon account if you want to support us, and some merchandise as well. We look forward to seeing you again in two weeks when we have our very first guest expert on, and we will be discussing bear baiting. (laughs) 